this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 149, and we are recording on March 3rd. I'm Jen Northington, here with Sharifa Williams, and today we are doing a book club discussion for Lone Women by Victor Lavelle, which is actually not out until (laughs) March 28th. Sorry, not sorry. We wouldn't normally pick a book that was not out yet to book club, but... We did. <laughs> I like don't have any other explanation for it than we did. We just did. <laughs> it was irresistible. And I guess this will appeal to people who don't really care much about spoilers. And we will, as usual, you know, start out with non-spoilery stuff so that at least people can listen to a good chunk of yes. the episode. <laughs> yes. Yes. We will be very clear. And um, really, this is just like our probably you should read this book when it comes out <laughs> pitch. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll get more into that um, after we do some announcements and some news. So let's see. All right. So an announcement. We have a brand new fancy thing. It is a Substack exclusive newsletter called The Deep Dive. And it is full. It is going to be full. We just launched it. It's going to be full of Mm -hmm. fascinating stories, um, informed takes, advice, and more from experts in the world of books and reading. Uh, So, yeah, we're tapping our in-house experts to, like, you know, talk to y'all about all of the things that they know. We're going to look at lesser known histories in books. We're going to talk about experiences as readers, all of that good stuff. Uh, So the paid level is $5 a month. And you get it in your inbox twice a month. And if you are on the fence or need some time to think about it, um, there is a free subscription level that will get you the splash pad. Side note, love. Love the names of these. (laughs) (laughs) They're so fun. It's so fun. And that's going to have some like recommended reading, bookish lifestyle goods that we're excited about, you know, fun stuff uh, monthly. So did I miss anything, Sharifa? You've been working on this a lot. Yeah, that was that covered it really. We have a uh, a long think piece on Colleen Hoover from oh. Jeff. Um, so we've already got some good stuff in there for anybody who subscribes and wants to look back at the archive and you know read some really interesting articles from Jeff and Rebecca both who who sent some in. So nice. Just uh, I encourage everybody to go and sub- hit that subscribe button. Yes, so you can do that at bookriot.substack.com. All right, we will now do a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow and Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. 
A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right. So I will be kicking off our news segment. And I wanted to start with some really cool news. This is coming from Vibe, reported on by Amber Corinne. And it's about Eve L. Ewing, who is going to become the first Black woman to write one of the main Black Panther comic series. And I just wanted to mention, and I love this, that Ewing talked about some of the other great Black writers who have worked on aspects of the Wakanda universe. Um, She mentions Roxanne Gay and Nettie Okorafor and... Um, who else did she? Yona Harvey as well. So mm. she gave a shout out to the Black women writers who have worked in the Wakandan space, as she calls it, and just talks about her general excitement and enthusiasm about the great Black women, Black non-binary writers, and great people of color who have worked at Marvel and sort of paved the way for her to be able to work on this comic. And Ewing has been working in comics for some time. So she's written Ironheart. She wrote Ironheart in 2018. And this is obviously huge news. And it's it's kind of like so wild to me that this is like the first Black woman writer working on the main Black Panther comics. Mm. But I am so excited for her, she's obviously been doing a lot of work in comics for a long time, and the sounds hugely deserved. I can't wait to see what she does with the comics. She did mention that she's not necessarily rebooting the story, but um, building on what's already existing in the Wakanda universe and also introducing some really cool new things. And so everybody who loves the comics, who loves Wakanda and T'Challa, I think this is like some really great news. And I definitely encourage everybody to read more about Ewing and what she's doing in the comic space. There are lots of links to other stories where she's done interviews. So super cool. I'm really excited for her. Very, very cool. I got to catch back up with Black Panther. I have not read it since, gosh, the Ta-Nehisi Coates run. Um, and I didn't I mm-hmm. didn't finish that one. I'm so behind on comics in general, actually. <laughs> okay. But the thing I want to note here that I learned from this article, in addition to, obviously, uh, general excitement about um, Ewing's uh, getting to write the main Black Panther comic, is that Black Panther was originally called Cole Tiger. Yeah. Which I had no idea. And I was like, oh, wow. And it's so funny to me. I've been thinking about it ever since I read this article. Like, Cole Tiger to Black Panther. It's not actually that far, but it makes a world of difference. Yeah. I I was surprised by that as well. I did not. I admit I do not know a lot of the history of Black Panther, but that sort of took me out a little. Like, I was like, wait, what? Cold that, yeah, tiger. that <laughs> makes it makes all the difference in the world. I am glad they didn't stick with that oh, name. Yes. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So yes, super excited about that one as well. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. I am trying to decide where to go next. Here's a head scratcher. Um, I am just like, I just can't even with this. So this story is from Variety, reported on by Matt Donnelly. And the they have announced that there are going to be new Lord of the Rings movies from Warner Brothers. The word this article specifically uses is revamping. The Lord of the Rings film franchise. They're going to make multiple films based on the Lord of the Rings books specifically, which is already been done, obviously. (laughs) And like, I am just scratching my head about this one. Like they talk about how they're like, oh, yes, we're like talking to Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens about it. And like, you know, we can't wait to hear their vision, which is like a very diplomatic response to this. But it's bananas to me that like, like there's so much material. I mean, memorably, you know, we had the Rings of Power, which was working on. You know, I think from the Silmarillion as well as other back matter, um, lesser known, you know, stories from the Middle Earth, you know, worlds that uh, Tolkien has created. But for them to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to we're going to redo Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And they talk about in the piece how there are still bits of those books that didn't make it on screen, which like is obviously true. But none of those bits are standalone. Right. Like you can't have. I mean, just there's all kinds of pieces of like Tom Bombadil. Let's talk about Tom Bombadil for a second. You like you can't have a Tom Bombadil segment without Frodo. Right. Like or I guess you could. But like, what would it be connected to if you don't have the fellowship involved in that moment? So like I am just so sort of head scratchy about this i just i want them to stop rebooting things and make other things that's what i want (laughs) i feel that i truly don't know what they're like i was like what are we doing what are we doing with this with this uh work right now like we're just seeing so much stuff come out like so many people doing reboots and revamps and you know, trying to squeeze the life force out of series. And Lord of the Rings is one of those, like, (sighs) it's just endless, the stuff they try to pull out of this. And we've obviously seen, like, some failures happen Mm -hmm. here. And I'm just like, I know that these movies happened technically a while back, but it doesn't Mm. feel that long ago. And I'm like, at least give it, like, a few decades maybe right. like <laughs> right. like it just feels like it hasn't been enough time and we've also just had you know lord of the rings stuff crammed down our throats i'm just like exhausted by yeah. it yeah so and ugh, you know I, I don't know i don't know like i don't i'm not against reboots or revamps in general i think there's a lot yeah. of actually really interesting updating to do to a lot of older properties but those are from like Longer ago than 2003. Like, this is, like, barely 20 years in the case of Return of the King. Um, And it just doesn't... And especially because this... I mean, I don't know. There Obviously, there are things I wish they had done in those movies. But do I believe that Warner Brothers is going to do those? Like, do I believe they're going to cast more diversely amongst, like, elves and hobbits? Like, maybe. But, like, Mm. what else are you going to do with it? And also, are you going to, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't know. It. I agree with you. It feels too soon. And also, I would just, like, spend your money on something else, please, and thanks. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. my guess was going to be they're just going to, like, have a completely different cast and spend yeah. way more money this yes. time than they did last time. Like, that's Ooh. all I can imagine for I this. I mean, it's, it is. It's, uh, you're probably right. So, anyway, we're super <laughs> skeptical about that one in case you were wondering. <laughs> uh, come on now. All right. Well. I wanted to talk about, I guess, a a thing that makes me feel a little bit more conflicted than I Hmm. feel about the Lord of the Rings stuff. And it's, it comes from The Guardian, reported on by Sarah Shafi. And it's about some rediscovered Terry Pratchett stories that are going 
to be published. So these are stories, 20 of them, that were written under a pseudonym Terry Pratchett had. And so these stories have never been attributed to Terry Pratchett. And they were discovered through really interesting circumstances Mm. by a Pratchett fan, a, a few Pratchett fans actually. So one of the stories in this collection um, that were previously published was the quest for the keys. That's the name of the story. And this Pratchett fan, Chris Lawrence, had saved this story and literally like framed it, put it on his wall. It's been there for more than 40 years. And then I guess out of the blue, he thought to let the Pratchett estate know about its existence. And from there, the rest of the stories were discovered or, you know, unearthed is the word they use here by a couple of other fans, uh, Pat and Jan Harkin, who did a bunch of research to find the other stories. And now they're going to be published for the first time under Pratchett's name. And these are not Discworld stories. Um, They are not set in Discworld. But apparently they hint at some of the world, at some of what Terry Pratchett is really known for um, as as it relates to Discworld and, you know, just his whole world building, really. So (laughs) the reason I feel like conflicted vaguely conflicted. Uh, Maybe it's too strong Mm. a word, but, you know, Terry Pratchett famously had his unpublished work steamrolled, like literally destroyed (laughs) and did not want any, um, any of that stuff to come out. Obviously, that was the reason for it. These were previously published, so it doesn't really apply. So, Technically, it's not a big deal. I don't know if like, I'm just so curious, like if Terry Pratchett was around today, like what he would think about it being unearthed, because he obviously didn't mention the work when he was around in his later years with this world. It remained under a pseudonym, mm. not attached to him. Um, but apparently, according to this piece and People who know him, you know, he just has always been a great writer and the stories are really um, excellent and, you know, give you the feel of Pratchett. So I don't know, like, I'm curious. I haven't finished Discworld, so I feel like I should probably (laughs) continue reading those books before I like fall on these unpublished unpublished works. But I'm also, of course, as a Pratchett fan, super curious about what his early writing looked like and, you know, just to see how he developed as a writer. Mm. Because as a writer, I'm always fascinated by that with um, authors that I really admire. But... I, I don't know. I think this is an interesting one for Pratchett fans. And I'm so curious about how it'll do, like if it'll sell and if people oh. will be as enthusiastic. I know. I think it'll, <laughs> I mean, I don't have any doubts that it'll sell personally. Like, yeah. And I do, I feel you. I mean, to me, it was like, okay, these were already published. So uh, I, I do see that argument for it not coming under, you know, the his his last wishes about unpublished work um but it's fascinating you know they were they they like they were published in a newspaper you know they weren't yeah. they weren't collected in a book they were not published in like literary magazines they were they were serialized in newspapers so uh and there weren't like you know they were not considered part of his works by anybody other than obviously him and now these fans who like I guess knew about the pseudonym that's the part that I wish the Guardian went into more specifically is like did he publicly acknowledge the pseudonym like is that generally publicly known was it a secret like that's the part that I'm sort of curious about but 
I'm zero percent surprised that they will collect them and publish them. Yeah, and it will. <laughs> I have no doubt that they will be very popularly sold. I do agree with you. It's super interesting to see a writer's evolution, and it would be interesting to see how these compare to Discworld. But I also understand it's like, uh, he kind of didn't want anything published after he died is one way to interpret that. And this would be uh, not quite honoring that. So I see, I see your conflict is, is all I'm saying. Yeah. I obviously would not judge anybody for buying this collection. I will probably end up picking it up at least to put on my tbr because i can't help myself <laughs> yeah i was gonna say there's no way you're not reading them right like yeah. you're gonna read yeah. them <laughs> so here we are uh all right so our last story is one oh gosh y'all yeah i just i have so many thoughts and feelings about this i'm gonna try to keep it concise this is also from the guardian uh the Oh, and it was reported on by Alex Hearn Um, and the sci-fi publisher Clark's World, which is like a very long running, you know, short story publisher in science fiction, very well respected, like memorable. That has also given a lot of writers their first start because it's one of the few publications that always has open submissions and accepts short stories from new writers um, without, you know, uh, asking them to pay and it pays like Clark's world is sort of, you know, unique among um, short fiction publications for those reasons. And that's why it's a big deal that they have had to close their submissions because they were flooded with AI generated short stories. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not great. Neil Clark is the founding editor and he was like, you know, we used to get like a couple of these and then in February we had more than 500. Um it has like the release of Chat GPT has like really increased this. And it to be clear, this is not, you know, these are like scammers. They're just trying to get paid. This is not I don't think like actual new writers like trying to you know whatever like this these are people who are trying to scam and get paid and not be like part of the sci-fi community part of you know the speculative community trying to make a career for themselves uh, for the most part I'm sure there are some folks out there doing that too but mostly these are side hustle people is what Clark has said and I'm sure that that's true um and there's all kinds of controversies going on right now around AI generated content I didn't even realize this but the article notes that uh, this there the Colorado State Art Fair awarded first prize to an image created by Midjourney, um, yeah, uh, by a person named Jason Allen who like was the one who like typed the prompt in, and they like you know this he got first prize for this art, <laughs> and there was a thing that happened with Tor.com where they realized that one of their covers had been created using AI generated art, which is not. Like AI generated art is based on the art of other artists who have not authorized it for that use. So that's, you know, art plagiarism functionally. Um, so Tor is working on screening that now for their cover images. And they're not the only ones who are having to grapple with this. Everybody across publishing is having to deal with the art, the, you know, stories, the words, like it's all, I mean, we're talking about it in-house. So there are ways in which AI generated text is huge for all kinds of things, a very useful tool. And then there are ways where it's a huge problem for publishing. And this is one of those ways. So functionally, Clark's World can't reopen until they have figured out how to weed these out without a human being having to go through each and every one of them and reject them, which is unsustainable on you mm. know the shoestring budgets and resources and staffing that these publications traditionally have. So it's uh, going to be real interesting. I'm going to be following this story as much as possible because yeah, how do you how do you solve how do you solve a problem like Pat GPT <laughs> to paraphrase the sound of music? <laughs> It is a monumental task. Like, I know people are trying to sort out this puzzle across industries, like where plagiarism and 
AI generated whatever mm-hmm. isn't what they're trying to produce and offer. So I am really curious about what kind of solution they're going to find. And, and you know, they talk about this and you talked about this, that they, they pay um, people who are new to publishing their stories, people who are trying to get into this world as writers. And one of the things about Clark's world is that they do pay professional rates and professional rates give you access to all sorts of things like memberships and Mm -hmm. uh, writing associations and things. It's like one of the, the gates that kind of bar you from access to those things. So it is hugely important, not just for the money, but for like having access and support as a writer. So yes, yes. just like, oh, it's just disappointing to see. And I'll also be following the story. Just like, I hope they come up with a solution. I know. All the whiskeys to them as they try to sort it out. For real. It's, and it's expensive to use the screening tools and they're not also foolproof. Um, So yeah, there's, there are screening tools, but like, again, it's not that simple. So yeah, this is a thorny, complicated problem and uh, we'll see what happens, but definitely sending good thoughts for the Clark's World folks for sorting it out. All right. Well, that's our news. Uh, Let's take another sponsor break and then we will get into our book club discussion of Lone Women by Victor Laval. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story. So in Just Some Stupid Love Story by Caitlin Doyle, Molly and Seth were best friends turned lovers until Molly ghosted Seth on the eve of their high school graduation, which is very trifling, I might add. So now they've reunited again at their high school reunion 15 years later, and they make a bet. Whoever can predict the fate of five couples before the next reunion must declare that the other is right about true love. But what is the catch, you might ask? Well, the catch is that the fifth couple is them. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a callback to the best 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. If you like When Harry Met Sally or How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, this will be right up your alley. This is also perfect for fans of romance readers of Emily Henry, Catherine Center, and others like that. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Just Some Stupid Love Story, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iemide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say, these two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iyamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. Okay. I'm so excited <laughs> to talk about this book. It is Me such too. a ride. <laughs> such a ride. I did not know what to expect going yes. in. Like, you know, I did the thing of reading as little as possible about it. Of course, I saw the synopsis, the mm-hmm. publisher's synopsis. But that was about it. And so I was really surprised and delighted and horrified by yes. everything <laughs> I found in this book. <laughs> correct. That's the correct list of emotions and feelings. So, yeah, to sum up very briefly, it is set in 1915 Montana. Uh, our main, main character, although this is a multiple perspective story, y'all. So yes. keep that in mind. 
But our initial main character is Adelaide Henry, who is a young black woman um, who is leaving California, a very settled black farming community in California, to go to Montana as a lone woman, quote unquote. This was like a known term uh, to be a homesteader. And she's got a giant trunk that's locked and super heavy and very alarmed about the trunk. You start out the story knowing that her family has died. Her parents have died horribly, like blood everywhere. She's burnt the house down. You don't know what's going on with her, except for that it's very bad and she needs to get out of town. And so she's going to Montana. And then we get along to Montana where we meet, you know, a bunch of other characters um, who occasionally we get POV from, which was, I think, a really smart and interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, Victor Laval is the author of a lot of books that we love. Um, the Ballad of Black Tom is one I am always recommending. The Changeling yep. is one of the most horrifying books I've ever read in my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's also written comics, including Destroyer, which is a take on Frankenstein. And he is one of the only horror authors that I read and I've been trying to remember like how how did that happen like how did I that's fascinating because the changeling is particularly oh, gruesome and so I'm like <laughs> that is really that's really I didn't I I don't think that clocked in my head but I mean if you had to choose one I think yeah. this Laval is like a great one <laughs> well I, I think what happened is somebody gave me the Devil in Silver. Yeah. And didn't tell me it was horror. And The Devil in Silver was scary, but was manageable for me. So then I picked up The Ballad of Black Tom, which same, scary, absolutely scary, but really manageable. And I really loved the character work and like the settings. You know, it's a lot of New York City stuff and the outer boroughs. And then I, so I was like, oh, I can read really Victor Laval. And then I read The Changeling. And I was like, <laughs> I, I regret, but I couldn't put it down. It was so oh. awful. I mean, it's the reason I have like the computer like camera screen setup that I do like it's oh my good <laughs> tinfoil hat like oh that's a rough book y'all really rough so but you know I now that I've started reading him I don't feel like I can stop I guess is what's happening here I don't know I don't know how to explain it Sharifa <laughs> yeah I you know I think that because he's such a reliably wonderful writer, which mm. is, you know, when you talked about this book for our most anticipated for this yes. year and you had pointed it out to me, like I, both of us were obviously very excited because anytime you see something come out from Victor Lavelle, you know, you're going to get into something good. And I mean, this one, as far as gore mm -hmm. goes, it was quite gory, but there were also moments that kind of balanced out the really terrible, just like ghastly, yes. explicitly violent bits. So I think as somebody who reads just like an abundance of horror, perhaps I can't say this for <laughs> other people, but to me it felt like Maybe that helps a little with this read. It's not like just nonstop gore fest. Yes. Yes. I know. I think you're right. I think like Ballad of Black Tom and Devil in Silver, this was a manageable level of horror for me because it was balanced out. There's some amazing character work, setting work. And not that darker horror doesn't have those things, but like you spend time out of the horror enough that when you go back into it, you're like, okay, just have like, I'm like white knuckling it, but I'm like, I yeah. know that I'm going to get through it because there's going to be like light on the other side of the tunnel. Um, and I also think it's the, the approach of the author that makes a difference to me, right? Like mm -hmm. unremitting, unrelentless darkness is not going to work for me. I can't do it. I can't stay in that space for extended periods of time. And so uh, authors who do that are not authors I can read. Whereas Laval finds these moments of brightness, finds these moments of, you know, even if it's like not fully redemption, it is, it feels like an upward moment. And that is what helps me as well. So yeah, like if yeah. you are not a horror reader, 
Um, I think this one, again, with we'll give content warnings, obviously, but like I think it's manageable uh, in a way that like the changeling, I'm very careful about who I recommend the changeling to. Oh. <laughs> that book is rough. Um, so, yeah. So just to give those content warnings, obviously racism is a theme in this book, right? Where we have a black female character, misogyny, also a theme, side note. Mm-hmm. Um as Sharifa said, there's extremely graphic violence against all kinds of people, animals, creatures. Like, it is, nobody is safe from violence. Um, there's also uh, homophobia and transphobia and faked disability in this book. So those are all things that you will want to keep in mind. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, we'll talk later about stuff that didn't quite work for us. I think for the most part, it's all handled extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. So... Yeah, we we kind of covered why we chose it for book club, but I know you have some thoughts about this book versus some of his other books, yeah. and I'm really curious about that. It felt really different to me in a way that I've been struggling to put my finger on, and as I was prepping for this, I was like, I wonder if it's just the setting. Like, he's done historical horror before as well as contemporary, but generally his stories take place in, you know, New York City and the outer boroughs. So... And this is obviously, like, deeply historical and set in Montana. Like, that's new for my experience of reading Laval. And I wonder how much of that feeling of, like, well, this is so different from his other books is just that. Like, maybe I just got used to his amazing depictions of New York City and the boroughs. And this is, like, that's what's different about this. I don't know. Do you have feelings about this book compared to the other book? I felt the same. Yeah. Mm. I, I've i read, um, you know, The Changeling and The Bla- Ballad of Black Tom and also um, Destroyer. And I mm. think maybe the only thing I can think of, because I felt the same but didn't, like, give it a ton of thought, but I think this is the first book I personally have read of his where – most of the perspectives are women. Oh, like, that's true. Almost completely straight through, like this is an entourage cast, <laughs> you yeah. know, like multiple perspectives and and the women's voices are so strong in this and their stories are like, they make up the brunt of this mm-hmm. book. So I was like, oh, this is like the first time I've read a book by Laval where, you know, there were so many women characters and we were mostly hearing their perspectives. Um, That's a good point. I did not think about yeah. that, but you're right. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. Like, I love a posse of women and in yes. the Old West and like, yeah, <laughs> give me that. I'm I'm good with it. <laughs> hundred percent hundred percent well let's talk about some of those characters I mean you have a great pick for your favorites I I'm honestly very hard-pressed to pick though because it is an ensemble cast and aside from like the actual villain villains I I really loved almost everyone not everyone but almost because they all had these you know they're flawed they're morally gray they're complicated they are very shaped by their circumstances, sometimes in like super not great ways, um, but they all have so much heart. And uh, I'm saying all, but again, there are like notable exceptions to this. I'm not going to say who because I don't want to give spoilers, but um, there are notable exceptions to my feelings about this. But yeah, I just I thought everybody was so great. Uh, So it's really it was very hard for me to narrow down like an actual favorite favorite. But I support your picks, obviously. You want to talk (laughs) about that? (laughs) Yeah, I I found it extremely challenging as well. And I forced myself to choose a couple of characters. So I wasn't like choosing one. Yeah. But um, I forced myself to choose by saying, okay, well, if I got to have a little bit more backstory or just story in general about a character or a couple of characters, who would I want to hear about first at least mm. and so I chose Birdie and Fiona who I mm. noted I thought of as a the power couple oh yes in this book because they are both just 
like I I'm so fascinated with their story. So mm. Birdie is a black woman who lives in this setting in Montana and has made a really lucrative business for herself with beer. I thought that the fact that she runs a brewery was really cool. And she just seems like so no nonsense. And like she has some really uh, potent feelings about mm -hmm. certain things, which you you find out about later in the book. And I won't get into too much here yet. And then there's Fiona, who's Bertie's partner, who's a Chinese-American woman and dealing with xenophobia and racism uh, toward Chinese-American people mm -hmm. in the Old West, which was rampant. And also the two of them are just like, they ha they have to have this relationship in, in mostly secret and mm -hmm. they don't get to just publicly show affection for each other, but they're so strongly supportive of each other and I thought that they're like the little bits that you get about their relationship were just like so wonderful. And I just wanted more of that. So that's how I chose that. <laughs> oh, I love that approach. I will 100% cosign that. I would read <laughs> the bejesus out of more Birdie and Fiona perspectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, one of the it comes down to one of the things I loved about this generally is that because we have this multi perspective uh, setup we get to be inside of the perspectives of folks who are often overlooked or ignored characters in Old West yes. uh, stories, which like we knew going into that Victor Laval was going to, right? Like I was like, yeah, he's going to give us characters that we don't normally get. And we did. We got multiple Black and Asian American cap characters. We got a Mexican-American couple at one point towards the end. There are multiple queer characters. There's overlapping intersections of identity. Um, we do only get one Native character, um, a Métis trader named Clement Cardinal, and he's great. Uh, but I, I, that was my, that was one of my like, oh, I wish there was just a little bit more acknowledgement um, or even a lot more, but like more. And it's not fair to put all of that on Laval. This is something I want to see in all weird Western stories or all Westerns is more of that acknowledgement of the original inhabitants and, and their stories. Um, so, you know, that's just like an overall note I have for all Western stories that I read for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I did think, you know, the characters that we did get, yeah, were, they were like, it's like a kaleidoscope of people, which I really loved. I did too. And yeah, there was that one moment where um, Clement Cardinal was basically like, because this is a homesteading story, mm -hmm. it's about homesteaders. And he was like, well, yeah, like whose land do you think that mm -hmm. was that, that the homesteaders got? And I was like, yep. So I also really appreciated the – diversity of characters in this story and you know I'm somebody who has in the past avoided um, stories about the old west and homesteader stories I used to read more of that stuff for young readers mm -hmm. as a you know middle grade reader um, the stories we all know about homesteading I don't even have to name them here no, but yeah <laughs> But then later on in life, of course, I was, you know, like it, it, I realized how complicated and problematic some of those stories were. And it just like really turned me off from them. And stories about the Old West, I just generally really haven't. I never really got into them mm -hmm. because, you know, it really set they tended to center white men. And I just didn't find anything for myself in there. So I was like when I was reading I started reading this and realizing where we were going and that this was going to be a homesteader story. I was like, I would not even have thought about ever coming across or reading a story where black and queer and native people, like people in the margins mm -hmm. were centered in one of these stories and it made it so much more inviting to me. And I, I was able to kind of put aside my 
distaste for stories of the <laughs> old west. <laughs> legit, legit. Yeah. So that it, that it did a lot for me. This story. I want yeah. more of this. I know. I know. You know what's so funny too is that when I started reading it, I was like, I have read a weird Western short story about a locked trunk. I have. I know I have. And I could not for the life of me Google it up. I cannot figure out where I read it. I thought for a minute that it was Karen Russell's short story, Proving Up, which is in Vampires in the Lemon Grove. But that's not, that is a homesteading story, a horror homesteading story, but it's not about a trunk. It's about a window. And I, if anybody listening is like, oh yeah, I read that too. And you know what it is. Like, please, please send us an email, sffyeah at bookwrite.com. Because I'm like, I know this is a thing that I've read before. And I'm so curious, like, what is it about the giant steamer trunk that's locked and cannot be opened that is so, like, where did it come from? Like, what was the first one? Like, this is a thing because I know I've read more than one. And so it's driving me a little batty that I can't think of what that story was so I can, like, start tracing sort of the the trope lineage, as it were. Like, I'm I'm here for it. I love it. I just can't figure out where the other one I read was. (laughs) So I don't know if this is one of those, like, moments, that phenomena where everybody thinks that something was in existence Mm. and whatever. But I feel like that sounds really familiar. Right? Even as somebody who hasn't obviously read a lot of stories about the Old West, Mm -hmm. it sounds super familiar. And I do wonder if maybe I just read something about a locked trunk that had nothing to do with the Old West. But it sounds like – I feel like somebody out there has has to Somebody's got to know. Somebody's got to know. Can we also talk about this moment? Because you put it in the notes, but I also loved it with the birdie and Adelaide hair moment. Oh my gosh. I got chills, y'all. Like there was, there's this beautiful, I mean, really funny actually moment where Birdie calls out Adelaide's hair and when they like first meet, I think. Um, And then there's a callback later when Birdie like finally shows up and is like, all right, now we're going to fix your hair. And I was just like, this is such a beautiful, mundane, but like all, again, like feels like a very overlooked moment right like black hair needs a very specific kind of care yeah yeah and it's a thing that I think you know with a story where a black woman especially is in this setting I I think I would have automatically just assumed we wouldn't hear anything about her hair but Mm. it is such a I was just like I am so glad Laval included the scene and mm. there was like a really bit maybe bittersweet moment where yes. you know she was Birdie was doing Adelaide's hair and she like slipped into her memory and thinking about yes. her mom doing her hair and the comfort of that and like had to stop herself from stroking Birdie's ankle yes, or something yes, like that. Yes. Because, and I was like, oh, this is like so real and so good and I I just adored that moment in the story and that it happened between Birdie and Adelaide because how how do you how what a what better way for two black women to bond than yeah. to be in this survival mode and be like your hair girl you, yeah. <laughs> you gotta do something about that I yeah it's yeah I felt like a lot of readers would feel very seen by that moment like obviously not me specifically but like yes my understanding of it um so I was so glad I also side note in like talking about tiny moments I'm obsessed with Adelaide's horse Obadiah like I'm obsessed with Adelaide and her horse like I loved there's like these again this is what Laval is so good at there's these small moments that give you these like character depths without Mm -hmm. you know having to do a ton of work to get you there they're just there on the page and I loved Obadiah and Adelaide they were so great this big old clunky horse like I totally for like Adelaide is like a very tall very you know strapping strong woman so like physically it just made so much sense to have this 
you know, big, I don't know if strong is the word for this horse. For but this horse is like, a, yeah, a little bit like broken down, like, you know, yeah. sort of like cheap because nobody else wants him. But like, he's here to do the thing. <laughs> yeah, he's doing his best. Yeah. And Obadiah is just a great name it is. for a horse. It really gives you a sense of who this horse is. Yes, yes. <laughs> loved it, loved it. There's so many moments like that. I mean, just so many great moments between two characters or between a character and an animal or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Give that depth of feeling that I really loved. Uh, all right, so should we get into spoilers now? Is now is the time? I feel like I think so. We've given a lot of non-spoilers. Yes, stuff, so yes. I think we're allowed. All right, now. so this is the moment, y'all. If you <laughs> don't want to get spoiled on some things, turn off the podcast. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, yes. things we didn't love as much. Yes. So, I actually have one I also didn't even think to put in here. And it just oh. occurred to me as we were talking. Mm. But, like, I think that this this was the thing that uh, spoke to me about things that surprised me about Birdie's character. Mm. Where mm. once we discover who Elizabeth is. Yes. Like, not who Elizabeth is. What the secret in the trunk is. Right. Who the creature in the trunk is. Yes. Yes. And so there is a creature in the trunk, and the name of this creature is Elizabeth. And it turns out that Elizabeth is Adelaide's sister. And so there's this big conflicting moment. We know that Adelaide has felt all sorts of ways about yes. this secret her family has kept Elizabeth, who is, you know, who was born Adelaide's twin, I believe. Am I yeah, remembering twin. that correctly? Yep. Yeah, twin, yep. Yeah, born Adelaide's twin, but looks very different is, right. you know, what they're describing, you know, is uh, this is supposed to be the monster in the trunk moment mm -hmm. and Elizabeth is monster. And so Adelaide has all sorts of feelings about like, did I not do enough to protect Elizabeth? Mm -hmm. And and I was also like, as I was reading this, I was like internally disturbed because I was like, I don't even know the answer to this. Right. What what do people do in this situation? And Bertie obviously have very strong feelings of like, how could you do this? Yes. Like, how could you, your own sister and your parents' own daughter how could mm -hmm. you treat her like this of course later on she experiences uh, the interaction yes. with elizabeth and is like oh you were talking <laughs> about a literal monster right right but that was like that whole thing was purposefully disturbing and yes ugh. extremely uncomfortable and like i think and that was one of the things i loved about the ending actually is that like Elizabeth and Adelaide become a duo and like they are like despite you know Elizabeth being like a legit like feeding on the blood of humans and animals monster mm -hmm. is an accepted and like protective part of this community and it I just love how it complicates you know, the creature feature narrative. Like, yeah. and I, I think sometimes, I will say, I think sometimes, you know, stories will quote unquote redeem their villain by giving them like a horrific backstory. It's not their fault that they're monsters, um, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. And I think, yeah. you know, Laval is shining light on how Elizabeth was made in certain ways to be the monster that she is by the behavior of others, but also like she is a monster, like she's a legit monster. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's both, it's both. And I appreciate like, again, so much nuance. Like I think I appreciate that it's both, um, that she is a monster and also she has value to this community at the end and like for better or worse, like for good or ill, like maybe it's right and maybe it's not. And, but it is what it is. Um, and that sort of moral gray, area is like I like to roll around in it you know yeah. <laughs> because it is so uncomfortable but I think it's important because so many things are not starkly good or bad and it's important to like get your brain around like able to think about that 
in in ways that are whether fictional or in real life because that's where the work is to me like that's where the work of finding the best path forward the most right path is because there's never one path that's like 100% right I think Uh, often anyway like obviously there are exceptions but you know what I'm saying yeah absolutely you aren't given the answer here like you are presented with the circumstances as they happen and it's up to you to figure out like what your feelings are and yeah and what is right in this situation and what is wrong and what is like neither just yeah. like it like, is what it is yeah like Joab's storyline man I was yeah. real oh. uncomfortable with that one I still don't know how I feel about it to be perfectly honest I like really don't know how I feel about his the ending that he gets like Ooh, it's yeah. it's compl- it's hashtag complicated, y'all. Hashtag complicated. I was literally walking around yesterday thinking about this discussion coming up, and I was <laughs> like, can w- would I say on a podcast that I kind of wished that Job had or Joab? I don't know I how to say know, it. Yeah, had met his unlucky end like (laughs) listen I feel you though I like to I'm torn about it I'm actively torn about it like do I think he deserved that ending do I think there's anything about like deservingness that's like in you know what I mean there's so many questions and this is the thing that Laval does he's like well what do you think (laughs) I don't know you tell me like it's like oh god whoo uh it's spicy it's spicy yeah, it is. And the moment with, uh, you know, the other – one of the other things that made me uncomfortable. So this yes. isn't like uh, – it just made me uncomfortable. The stuff with Sam at yes. the end where, you know, they basically – I can't remember if they dead-named Sam. They the they both dead-named Sam and, like, yeah. actively misgender, actively, like, yes. force – you know, different clothing on Sam. And he's like, you know, I think this is again where the multiple perspectives get sticky. Sorry to interrupt. I just like, I was oh, no, thinking ahead. about this too. But like, because you're in the head of somebody who sees Sam as a girl when Sam is not a girl. And so yeah. there's this unquestioning assumption by by that perspective that you know is wrong, um, but it's yes. unquestioned within that perspective. And then, but you also get like other perspectives that fully acknowledge that Sam is a boy. And so it's so, I mean, I'm getting like weird, like dissonance chills just talking about it. I think it's very tough. Mm. I think it's very hard to read. Um, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I hadn't thought about the perspective shift there, but that makes a lot of sense because I had to like, I had to kind of remind myself that this is like the character yes. speaking, yes. the way they were approaching Sam Ugh. and I just, I had a really hard time with that yep. piece of it and 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 it it was supposed to be that way and i just it was tough. it was rough it was yeah tough. it was really rough yeah. yeah one of the things that i had on and i was curious if you felt this too like very occasionally somebody will curse like use like mm-hmm. the f bomb or something else and I I will preface this with I have seen all of Deadwood. <laughs> like <laughs> I know that there was cursing in the old west, right? Like that's yeah. that's not my problem. What was weird about it in my reading of this book was that it was so sparse that when it happened, I found it really jarring. And I think that was probably a deliberate choice. I'm sure it was a deliberate choice for emphasis. And it works as emphasis, but it also knocked me out of the story just a little bit. And I was wondering if that was true for you as well. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. It might have been when there was cursing, but there were moments for me that felt like um, it almost slipped into some more contemporary sounding language generally. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure because, you know, with weird fiction and with with stuff that isn't really like our reality, I don't always know, like, is that intentional because this is not the world we're living in or maybe I just don't know enough about right. the old west and language that was used <laughs> back then maybe it, like that was just how people talked I don't know so I couldn't I couldn't figure out if like 
I was just reading too much into it, but mm. I was curious at least about like, so are they, are we going into the realm of like, this is just contemporary language right. that's occasionally being used here and, you know, that's just part of this world. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So maybe that's, maybe that's uh, part of what I felt in terms of the sort of sparseness and jarring feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Interesting things to think about. So much interesting things to think about. So much. But I just I oh, I just loved this book. I I blew through it. I sort of saw it because I read this as a, an ebook and I saw it and I saw all the parts and chapters and you yeah. know like I struggle with longer mm -hmm. books these days and I was like, "Oh, am I going to be able to finish this in time?" <laughs> I was like, I could not put it down. And I got through it so quickly because I was just enjoying getting to know these characters. I just really yeah. loved this book. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, go out and get it. It's good. <laughs> we'll be curious <laughs> to hear other folks' thoughts about these spoilery matters and other matters. Um, and also, if you have read a locked trunk weird western, please, yeah. please email sffia at bookriot.com. I'm dying to know what it was that I read because uh, I know I read one. All right. Well, that's that's our book club discussion. Uh, so yeah. thanks for coming on that journey with us. Um, As of Evia is sound edited by Caitlin Brame. Many thanks to her for making us sound great each and every episode. For more recommendations, you can check out bookriot.com. You can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. And don't forget to check out The Deep Dive, bookriot.substack.com. Uh, and yeah, thanks for listening. As always, email us about locked trunk westerns or whatever <laughs> at sffia at bookriot.com. You can review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Helps other sci-fi fantasy fans to find the show. Um, and speaking of finding us, Sharifa, where are you? I'm on Instagram at Williams, S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And you can find me on Tumblr at Jen I-R-L, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. Uh, and yeah, we will talk to you next time. <laughs>